Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome again to our continuation of our study through the book of 1 Peter. And we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we got through about the first 18 verses last time. And the last part of 1 Peter chapter 2 is going to focus in on a very important concept. What we've studied so far is talking about the salvation that God has provided for us and how that we are a royal priesthood um, built up of stones on the foundation of the rock, Jesus Christ, and how we go through the trial of our faith to prepare us to receive that salvation, that we are born again of incorruptible seed, and so on and so forth. Now, as we got into chapter 2, it talks about laying aside all guile, malice, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking as newborn babes who desire the sincere milk of the word. And so the beginning of chapter 2 talks about this is how we begin our Christian experience and we grow from there. And in verses 9 and 10, Peter's speaking especially to the, to the Christian Gentiles of his time that in time past they were not a people but are now the people of God. They've now obtained mercy. They had been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And in verse 11, he talks to the strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And then he talks about submitting to those in authority over us, whether it's the governors or the kings. And, and so that's an important concept, that we do obey authority. <clears throat> and in verse 17, this is where we finished last time, he talks about honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we fear God, and of course that reminds us of the first angel's message, fear God, give glory to him, the hour of his judgment has come also says honor the king. So once again, this, this concept of honoring those who are in authority over us. <clears throat> now, this is where things hit close to home for us today because starting in verse 18, the message that we see here is certainly applicable um, throughout time. So picking up in verse 18, it says, servants, Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. And the word froward means those who are are not um, good and gentle. So you may say, well, you know, I'll I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. Um, You know, I would be nice to my boss if my boss didn't pick on me. Um, And the Bible is saying, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, and hopefully you have a good boss or a good teacher or so, someone like that, but hey, it says, be subject to those also who are not good and gentle. And now notice what Peter continues to say in verse 19. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you, take it, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now, 
this has been an interesting point to me. It's like Peter saying, okay, so you mess up. Maybe you're at work and you did something that your boss had said, don't do it this way, and then you did it, and then you get penalized. Maybe you get, um, you have to work overtime or, or I don't know, you, you don't get some bonus time working towards vacation, something like that. And you legitimately messed up and you knew it. Um, and what Peter is saying, so hey, if you take that patiently, that's just, that's just par for the course because you messed up and you deserved the punishment. Um, so what glory is it if you take a punishment that you deserve? Although I'll have to say this, in the work environment that I sometimes cross, sometimes people mess up, they know it, and they're punished for it, and they fight back anyway. So, I mean, that's not even par for the course, so to speak. It's like God is saying, okay, you messed up, you're being punished for it, and you take it patiently. That's just, that's what's expected. You messed up. You don't need to fight back because you messed up. Take it patiently, learn from the mistake. However, notice what the true point is. In the last half of verse 20, it says, But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So now we're talking about you're doing everything right. You're doing everything that you were asked to do, everything that God has asked you to do. You're doing everything that those who are in authority over you have asked you to do. And despite all of that, you take the heat. You get criticized, you get punished. And what scripture is saying, God is calling us to take that patiently also. Now, why is that so hard? Because human nature says, wait a minute, I didn't mess up. How dare you condemn me or criticize me or punish me for something that I did that was right? You can't do that to me. And so that's why you see things like lawsuits and all sorts of things, because people are fighting for their name, they're fighting for their rights, and yet scripture says, what is acceptable with God is when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, that's acceptable with God. Now that is impossible to do except for the grace of God. Because if we don't have God's grace, we're going to fight back because our name and our reputation is very important to us. And we want to make sure that people know that we didn't mess up. And we need to remember, Philippians 2, that Jesus made himself of no reputation. <clears throat> but we want to have a good reputation. And so that's the struggle. And, and of course, the obvious point is, if we're fighting back for our reputation when we mess up, we're certainly going to be fighting back when we don't mess up. And so we definitely need to learn, starting point is, we messed up and we get punished for it. We need to learn to take that patiently. That's just par for the course. And God is saying, you also need to learn to do what is acceptable to me, and that is when you do what is right and you suffer for it and take it patiently, that's what I'm calling you to do. 
And that's a hard thing to do. And the question is, how can we have that kind of experience? Is there any example? And the obvious answer is found in verses 21 and onward. And in verse 21 it says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. So notice this. We are called to suffer when we do well. That's what verse 21 is telling us. Because Christ also suffered for us. And we know that Christ didn't do anything worth suffering for, right? And notice what it says about Christ. He suffered for us, and it says, leaving us an example. So what it's going to describe about Christ, specifically, in the next few verses, is an example to us that we should follow in his steps. Now, if you're following the context, the context is this. The thing that is acceptable to God is when we do well and suffer for it and take it patiently, that's acceptable to God, and this is what we have been called to. And Christ has left us an example in this way so that we should follow his steps. And what is the example that Christ has left us? Now, Darren, you had your hand up. Okay, um, just what does it mean that Christ made himself of no reputation? If, if you study Philippians 2, Christ was God. He took upon him the form of a serv servant and became a human being. So he went from being king of kings and lord of lords to being a humble human being here on this earth who was born in a manger, made himself of no reputation. Right. So... Going back to the issue of Christ left us an example that we should follow in his steps. What is the example that Christ has left us? So let's continue in verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 says, this is the example. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now, <clears throat> notice this. It says, Christ did no sin, no guile was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. What experience is this speaking about in the experience of the life of Christ? This is describing Christ going through Pilate's judgment hall and also before the priests and Pharisees with Caiaphas um, and then in front of Pilate and then of course on the cross. And so Christ, through that experience, did Christ deserve to be there? I mean, he did no sin. And so here he's being condemned to death when he did nothing wrong. And he's not saying anything back. 
he's not saying, this is so unfair. I came here to save you. Don't you know who I am? I am King of kings and Lord of lords, and I came here to this earth to save you, and the best you can do for me is put me to death. How dare you do that to me? And you know what? Unconverted human beings would say that. That's what unconverted human beings would say. It's like, I'm trying to help you out. I'm trying to be nice to you. And here you are. That's the best you can give back to me. You know, see if I ever help you again. And yet Christ says when he was reviled, reviled not again. You know, he was spat upon. He was mocked. He was hit. They were saying, prophesy, who hit you? I mean, he could have, he could have spoken back and said, oh, yeah, um, John Smith, you were born on October 10, you know, 8010, and your father and mother are this, and these are all the sins you've ever committed, and this is the last one you just committed. You know, Jesus could have done that. And as human beings, we have a tendency to want to fight back in that manner when people mistreat us when we are trying to do the right thing. And yet, through that experience, and I, I would encourage you, read through the Desire of Ages, through the chapters of the closing scenes of Christ's life, as you see how Christ committed himself to his Father. So, I mean, it is impossible, humanly speaking, when you are being falsely accused and being pushed around, so to speak, to not want to fight back and to not fight back. And so only by the grace of God and through his power can we say, Lord, I give this situation to you and I'm going to let your name be glorified through this situation. And that's what Jesus did. He, he stood there and he said, Father, you know, in Gethsemane the night before, he said, not my will, but your, yours be done. And it was the Father's will for him to go through that experience. And humanly speaking, Jesus clearly did not enjoy going through that experience. But he was there and said, Father, this is your will for me to suffer in this way. You're allowing me to go through this. And I am going to trust you that when it's all said and done, you're going to take care of this. And notice, this is not just a great story about, about Christ. Verse 21 says, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. So that's the example. So are we following in the steps of Christ? Because to be a Christian means to follow in the steps of Christ. And if we are a Christian, that means if the Bible says, here's the example, these are the steps to follow. That means the experience of Christ should be our experience. And of course, it's only as we are born again, as we talked about in chapter one, being born again of incorruptible seed. So that when you go through the fiery trial, and, and I'll tell you what, I, I can't think of a worse trial than to be completely right and to be condemned as completely wrong. It's like, you know, it's one thing if you, I don't know, if you have a disagreement with someone and then there's a lot of issues, and, and trials are trials. But 
Christ went through the ultimate trial, so to speak, because he did nothing wrong and he was condemned as the chiefest of sinners. And yet, it's interesting, the scripture is saying that we're going to follow in the steps of Christ if we take his name. So in other words, we, if we follow the life of Christ, we will do that which is right, and then we will be falsely accused as doing that which is wrong. And what God wants us to experience, that which is acceptable in His sight, is to pass through those trials and to not fight back even when we're right. And that's, that's impossible to do, humanly speaking. But through the power of Christ, it is possible. Only through the power of Christ. And so it's interesting now, some of these statements from chapter 1, talking about the trial of our faith being much, much more precious than of gold that perishes with fire, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You want to talk about a fiery trial, what Christ went through in Gethsemane and in the judgment hall and on the cross was a fiery trial. And the way we are purified is to also go through fiery trials. And humanly speaking, this has to be probably one of the most unpleasant kind of trials. And yet, if you look at it from God's perspective, this is how he purifies us. Because if we can learn through the grace of God to commit ourselves to him when we are being falsely accused, the, the bad traits of our character will be burned away, like <clears throat> the impurities that are burned away when gold is tried in the fire. So <clears throat> our tendency to talk back and to have a sharp little witty tongue to put someone back in their place when they put us in our place, those things get purified away when we go through these kind of trials. This is how the Lord purifies us, how he prepares us. And notice, Jesus committed himself to him, to his Father, that judgeth righteously. <clears throat> and we are also called to commit ourselves to him who judgeth righteously, because we are living in the time of the judgment. And so in the judgment, we commit ourselves to God who judges righteously. And, and verse 24 continues this thought who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Now that's a powerful verse. Jesus bore our sins on the cross. So don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus didn't really die for our sins. It's just an example for us. No, he died for our sins. He bore our sins on the cross. Um, and he did so for us because we're dead in sin or we're dead to sins that we should live unto righteousness. In other words, we should live the way Christ lived. Now, and it says, by whose stripes ye were healed. So we are healed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what's interesting. Here's a few key points. <clears throat> in... 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 it talks about how we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot 
And in Hebrews chapter 9, it also talks about how Christ offered himself without spot. But the word for spot can also be translated without fault in Hebrews chapter 9 and also in 1 Peter 2. So Christ was without blemish and without fault. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, and that's the example that we should follow. So Christ, in 1 Peter 1, verse 19, is without <clears throat> blemish and without fault or spot. 1 Peter chapter 2, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. So Christ, without fault, no guile in his mouth. Does that sound familiar? Yes, absolutely. Revelation 14. Very good. <clears throat> if you look <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 14, <clears throat> verse 5, it says, And in their mouth, this is 144,000, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So here you have a group of people who evidently have followed the example that Christ set for them, and so they followed in his steps. What, what did he do? He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now notice this. These people are without fault before the throne of God. They've committed themselves to him who judgeth righteously, and in the judgment, no guile is found in their mouth. They are without fault before the throne of God. So how do we live in the judgment? Do no sin, no guile in our mouth, and we commit ourselves to him who judges righteously, to be without fault. <clears throat> so God's last day people, in their mouth have no guile. They are without fault before the throne of God. So this tells you something. These people... <clears throat> have passed through an experience that is very similar to the experience of Christ. Christ went through experience where he was reviled, where he suffered, and yet he did not revile again or he did not fight back. He did not, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to God. 144,000, they go through an experience where they're going to suffer where they're going to be reviled, but their experience is the experience of Christ because they have taken to heart the message of 1 Peter 2 that Christ has left us an example that we should follow his steps. So scripture clearly paints Christ as our sacrifice, as our savior, but scripture also clearly paints him as our example that we should follow him. So to be a Christian means that we accept Christ as our Savior, but we also follow his example. That's the complete picture of Christianity. And so <clears throat> you may wonder, well, how can I be among the 144,000? Follow the example of Christ. Now that's easier said than done because the, the word pictures that I've painted earlier a lot of us struggle when we mess up and we're criticized for it. We want to fight back even then. So we need to at least get started on the right pathway by 
learning to surrender our lives to Christ so that when we mess up and we're criticized for it, that we take it patiently because that's just what is expected. And if we can't even do what is expected, how can we do that which is, which is impossible except for the grace of God? So we get started on that which is expected at least. Um, we stop fighting back when we mess up and say, you know what, I messed up, I'm sorry. And when we don't mess up and we are criticized for it, we take it patiently. Now, <clears throat> it's also interesting. Um, you know, verse 20 says that when we suffer, when we do well and suffer for it, we take it patiently. It's interesting. The 144,000 in Revelation 14, 12 are also described as having the patience of the saints because they learned to suffer or they learned to do well even through suffering. So you do the right thing, you suffer for it, but you continue to do the right thing and you do that which is acceptable to God. And that requires patience because we're not talking about just one day at the office. We're talking about a life experience, day by day. It's not a one, it's like, wow, I finally did it today. I, I made it now. I demonstrated patience. Yes. It's like every day, by the grace of God, we exercise patience. Because when the trials get more severe, when they get tougher, if we're not passing the easy trials now, the harder trials are going to be even more challenging. And of course, this whole concept of patience, Hebrews 12 talks about laying aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and running with patience the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? We look into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who set the example before us that we should follow in his steps. He ran the race, we follow his steps. Right. Right. I like that. So the peace that God puts in our hearts. And it's like, I, I'm glad you said that because if, if we're just trying to grit our teeth and say, you know, oh, this is so hard. Mm. Okay, I'm not going to fight back. <clears throat> um, but through the grace of God, we can say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's the peace that passes all understanding. It's only through the grace of God that Jesus could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We would be saying, boy, just wait. Uh, you know, if I really wanted to, I could come down from the cross and show you a thing or two. Go ahead. Yes. That's very good. So for those of you who may not have heard, in the book of James, James says, count all joy when you fall into various temptations and sufferings. And um, that takes divine patience to, to count a joy to suffer. And yet, if you look at the early apostolic church, when they would be tried or tempted or thrown, like Peter and James thrown into prison, they, they re were rejoicing that they could suffer for the name of Christ. Um, and sometimes, and, and I understand, you know, suffering and trials are difficult, but sometimes we'll come to church and we'll say, you know, pray for me. I'm just having a really horrible life right now, and I'm just not sure where God is. And, you know, and, and God is trying to teach us something. 
And the devil will try to swoop in and say, oh, how could God be a God of love if he allowed you to go through this? And God is trying to teach us, hey, if you learn to trust in me through these experiences, you will be purified and learn to walk with me no matter what happens. And, and I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not putting anyone down who's had those feelings. I'm, I know I have. That's the natural human response to trials. But God wants to call us to a higher plane of experience. Um, what's that? Yes, gold is purified by fire. So if we're going to be purified, we're going to go through the fire. Yes. Uh huh. That's true. Our character shows when we are tested. So it's an opportunity for our character to be refined and we can learn to be more like Christ through each trial that we go through. So it's a high calling. There's no question about it. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But by the grace of God, all things are possible. And if Christ left us an example that we should follow, that means God ex believes that we can follow that example. So you had a comment. Right. Right. We learn to have peace in Christ, a peace that passes all understanding. You had a, your hand up. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, the life of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a fine example of how this plays out. They were faithful in the issue of what they would eat, and then God gave Daniel the prophetic understanding, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down when everyone else did, including all the other Hebrew captives that were there. So, and then Daniel, at the very end of his life, he would rather die than to not worship the true God. So, um, that's an illustration of those living in the judgment. So, Christ has given us an example of how we should live our lives. He, when he went through the fiery trial of Gethsemane, the judgment hall in Calvary, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, and that is the example that we should follow. And so, in verse 25 it says, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So we, when we are dead to sins, were described as wayward sheep. And yet it's interesting, the 144,000 who are described as being without fall and having no guile in their mouth, just like Jesus, they are described, instead of being wayward sheep, as following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. So if you want to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth in heaven, you learn to follow him whithersoever he goeth here on this earth. So you follow Christ, who leaves us as an example that we should follow in his steps. You see that? So we were wayward sheep, but now we follow Christ. And when we get to heaven, we'll keep following him whithersoever he goeth. I'd like to do that. How about you? And God has called us to be that people, the 144,000, who when we get to heaven, we will follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. 
And so let's learn to follow Jesus Christ wherever he takes us now here on this earth because we're not going to do our own thing on this earth and then suddenly follow Jesus around through heaven. It's going to be an experience that we gain here on this earth. And Christ has made it possible for us to have that experience. So let's, by faith, have that experience. So you can see the book of 1 Peter is really a powerful book. I mean, it's got all these special truths that have special application for God's last day people. And certainly any Christian down through time after this was written in about 66 AD, if they follow the teachings of this book, can expect to be found in heaven with Christ. But especially for God's last day, people who are described in the way that 1 Peter 2 is describing the experience we should have, this book has a special message for us as we strive to be among God's last day people. So that's the end of chapter 2, and we have a few minutes, and we're going to get into part of chapter 3. Now, chapter 3 makes an interesting transition because in chapter 2, we're talking about, look, be subject to the authority under you, even if that authority is wrong. You're still obedient as servants following the authority that God has placed over you. You fear God, you honor the king, you're subject to your masters with all fear. And certainly the context that Peter was talking about, about doing what's right and suffering wrongfully, would have special application to those who were servants or slaves. Um, but of course it will have application to God's last day people as well. Now in chapter 3, Peter makes another application or another illustration of how to live your life even when you are being mistreated perhaps. So 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 says, Likewise you wives be in subjection to your own husbands that if they obey not the word they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. So in Ephesians 5, Paul, of course, talks about how um, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and yet he also says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and um, that's humanly impossible to do, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's only divine love that can come. It's not this, um, oh, she makes my heart beat so fast kind of love that we're talking about. It's the type of love that whatever happens, I know God brought us together and I'm going to be faithful to her and love her no matter what. That's the kind of love we're talking about. And so if the husband is like that, then of course the wife should have no problem with him being the head of her, so to speak. But Peter's talking about, look, what do you do when you're married and the husband is a big, he's, well, he's not a Christian. Um, he's not um, treating you the way he should. It says, likewise, ye wives. So it's like, likewise. So, hey, see how we talked about, you know, even when you're treated wrong, you suffer patiently and take it. It says, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So here's what Peter is saying. Look, maybe your husband is not a Christian. But be like Christ and you'll win him over. It's not a guarantee, but there's a good chance. 
because you're definitely not going to win them if it's like, oh, so you're, you're the husband's like, oh, so you're going to church again today. <laughs> Have fun. You, uh, go, go hang out with all those queers. And then you fight back and say, well, um, I'd rather hang out with them than hang out with you. How about that? And, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, you're not going to win anybody, you know, speaking like that. So <clears throat> what Peter's talking about here is be like Christ even if they aren't. And if you are, over time, God can work a miracle. And so, verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Now notice it, it continues on. Verse 3, it says, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Verse 5, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Now this is interesting. <clears throat> the picture that Peter is painting, it's like, look, you're not going to win your husband if he's not a Christian by fighting back. And you're certainly not going to win, win him if you try to put on an outward show by adorning yourself, painting yourself up, doing all this costly stuff. That's that which is corruptible. It's, it's interesting. He says, um, what you should do is have the meek and quiet spirit, which is not corruptible. If you remember 1 Peter 2, we're supposed to be born again of incorruptible seed. Oftentimes what people do to make up for a meek and quiet spirit is to put on a big outward show. Now, whether that's the wearing of jewelry or makeup or whatever, or um, to to do other things that that make this big outward appearance, it doesn't make up for the inward experience. And so oftentimes, and you can see this, and this is scripture speaking, but oftentimes when people are putting on the apparel, so to speak, the jewelry and all that, that is... Um, a natural outgrowth from the lack of a meek and quiet spirit. And if you're trying to win someone over, you're not going to win someone over by the outward show. The way you're going to win someone who is not of faith is to show them that meek and quiet spirit that's in the heart. And if you have a meek and quiet spirit in the heart, you're not going to be showing yourself off. I mean, you're not going to come to to Advent Hope on Sabbath and say, boy, I hope I can outdress everybody else today. You know, that's just not, that's not the meek and quiet spirit of Christ. And I mean, guys have their own issues with being meek and quiet. Um, we like to be accomplished and be recognized and all of that. So it goes, it's true for everyone. But that which is notice the pearl of great price so to speak is a meek and quiet spirit so if you want christian adornment be meek and quiet be humble that's true adornment um, so <clears throat> chapter three is a transition into the concept that look okay here's another illustration 
you're married and your husband isn't treating you well. Or maybe it's the other way around. Have the meek and quiet spirit, and they will be won by that. And, you know, verse 5, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves. So notice, this is how you adorn yourselves, with a meek and quiet spirit. It's not with gold, the wearing of gold. And that's pretty clear. So that's why Seventh-day Adventists have taken a stand on the issue of jewelry and adornment and all of that, that that which is really a demonstration of adornment is being meek and having a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And that's how the holy women of old adorned themselves. Continuing in verse 6, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. So Sarah is an example to God's daughters today. Verse 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as under the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So husbands certainly have their role to play as well, honoring the wife um, as honoring that, that who is the weaker vessel, giving consideration and being kind and loving and tender-hearted. Verse 8, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion, one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. So the church could go a long way if we could be of one mind, being compassionate, being pitiful, being courteous to each other. That's, courtesy is a lost art in um, today's day and age. Um, courtesy, just, it's not that hard by the grace of God. Verse 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. So again, this is the concept of not fighting back. So, so they, they say a hard saying to you, they put you down. So you don't put them down. Um, you don't fight back. But instead, you demonstrate the example of Christ. And in verse 10 it says, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. So there again we have the, the concept of speaking no guile, the example of Christ. And that is the experience of God's last day people. We will be of one mind. We will be courteous to each other. We will not fight back. We will be like Christ and follow in his steps. So I pray that each one of us will learn to have that experience and we will continue in our study of 1 Peter chapter 3 next week. Thank you.